Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. Thank you for joining me again. Once again, we are looking forward to a fantastic conversation. And remember, um, thinking about your brain uh, requires you to pause. It requires you to really consider, are you taking decisions that come from great effort, great attention to detail, and with a sense of purpose and value? Because that Uh, surely is a sign of strong executive function. As you know, in this podcast, we discover how to be effective in managing yourself, managing your, uh, your goals, managing your life, but you're also responsible for managing people and managing relationships. And there are some barriers to doing that. And this is the reason I'm going to tie in uh, the topic of soft skills today. You know, recently I read an article in uh, Harvard Business Review, which said that close to 48% of the labor force works in the middle employment sector uh, that can be labeled as middle skills job. uh, And that represents roughly 69 million people in America. What's so interesting, and my guest will agree with me, that the term soft skills really doesn't do justice to the skills part of it, uh, but mostly focuses on the behaviors of a part of it. And the soft may refer to uh, not being in your face or more so it's juxtaposed with something called technical skills. So, you know, we are talking about, uh, you know, Microsoft Word skills or talking about engineering skills or talking about in medicine or nursing skills. So there there are some specific skills related to the job that you hold and everything else that requires you to not just show up at the job, but manage the success of the job requires some other set of skills. So my experiences in business, uh, the soft skills include effective communication, professionalism, work ethic, critical thinking, teamwork, and leadership. But coming from the neuroscience and the science of effective communication, to me, and my guest will agree, soft skills are nothing but a combination of executive function, pragmatic skills, and social cognition. So um, long-term career success Uh, comes from mastery of soft skill, we should not really be so lackadaisical or casual about it. We should really dive deep and understand what is it uh, that constitutes soft skills and how can we really empower children, adults, and all of us as we have more and more life experiences. So that brings me to our lovely guest today. That's Dr. Leela Hartley. She received her doctorate in communication science and neuropsychology from University of Florida. She has over 40 years of clinical experience with adult neurogenic communication disorders. She is the author of Cognitive Communicative Abilities Following Brain Injury, A Functional Approach, and other several publications in the area of discourse, abilities, and functional approach to rehabilitation following traumatic brain injury. She is currently uh, in private practice here in Atlanta. She is an award-winning, highly respected Uh, amazing mentor to many of us, 
and a brilliant clinician and a dedicated volunteer. And she has been one of my um, partners in crime as we have launched a communication training program for homeless uh, community in Atlanta. And she and I have been, uh, along with the, our another colleague, Rita Lohr, we were the task force who put together the entire curriculum. So welcome to the podcast, Leela. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sacheda. <clears throat> Well, I ask this question of all my guests, and this will not be at all difficult for you, but since we talk about executive function and that's your wheelhouse, do you mind taking a minute and talk about your own executive function as a young learner, as a child? Uh, when did you become self-aware uh, regarding your strengths and challenges? When did you develop the skills that require uh, go into managing self? And did you have any... Um, roadblocks or any gifts that really came handy? Well, I grew up in a very disciplined, structured family with five children. So wow. my mother uh, really made sure we were very organized and that we worked hard. Um, so I'm not sure how self-aware I was early on, although I remember reading the book Cheaper by the Dozen and the guy is an efficiency expert, and that kind of raised the idea in my mind, hey, you can do things differently, and you can think about things and problem solve them so that you can be more effective. So that really piqued my interest in how we think about things. And then uh, my undergraduate degree was in psychology, and um, I learned a lot about uh, human memory and learning. And that really helped me go on to um, the interest that I have and how do we improve brain functioning. You know, it's so interesting that um, this is my recent conclusion that every individual should have either a degree in undergraduate degree in psychology or should do some courses in psychology because that that knowledge can be so valuable just to know that there's some parts of us that we can't access because we don't have that access. Um, second thing, you know, your cheaper by the dozen story reminded me that when I was growing up, my father uh, made us read a book called Jagat Kase Vagave, which means how to behave in the world. And Ooh. I loved that book so much because it was literally giving you templates of how yeah. to behave in the world in different circumstances that you may have never encountered. And, and I that has informed my knowledge that, oh, so you get invited to somebody's house, you need to take something, that's a protocol. What if you have not been invited in a while or you, you're a child and you don't know that because your parents are taking care of it? You know, so that, that was another very interesting. So sounds like you were very open to new experiences and the structure that you were gifted with really came handy in providing you um, an incredible organization uh, as you were learning. Uh, yes. Now, I think I was a little bit weak in uh, impulse control and organization to some degree, um, but um, uh, I certainly think I benefited from my mother's um, love of learning and approaching new things. And so I was drawn to improving myself always and to uh, new learning. 
You know, this reminds me of David Brooks' quote, which said, freedom without structure is its own slavery. So I think that she provided you uh, that structure that freed you up. <laughs> exactly. I love exactly. that. So let's start with um, this very topic that I think we uh, should really dive deep into. Uh, since you are, um, uh, you, you studied the science of communication and effective communication of, uh, on, on top of that, um, what do you, what, what feelings do you have towards the terminology soft skills? And can you help our listeners understand a little bit the science of communication and that may be lost in the term soft skills? Um, well, soft seems to imply something that means um, not important or um, so temporary or just doesn't really apply, in my mind, to the value that uh, social communication really has in the workforce. Um, because in terms of um, what we know about people's success on a job, we know that these communication and social communication uh, is one of the critical indicators of who is going to be successful and who is going to be uh, given promotions within an organization, who's going to be seen as a valuable member of the team and get along with others. So I agree that those particular skills are the number one thing that should be worked on for people to get um, to be successful in the workforce these days. But I just don't particularly care for that terminology because it almost applies that it's not so important. So can you break that down into communication as you know we understand as a listening, which is that uh, comprehension piece of communication to understand uh, comes before you communicate or exchange ideas, right? And even when it comes to communicate uh, there are two pathways. You can do it in writing or in spoken language. But there's, there's a third, the hidden agenda of nonverbal communication. So how would you describe that framework of thinking about communication as a made of tiers of skills that can be mastered or need to be mastered? Uh, well, you've kind of described them all right there, that uh, the term communication People don't really understand the complexity that's involved with it, but really it's our whole whole brain that's participating in communication. And as you mentioned, nonverbal communication is such a major you know, component of our ability for people to get ourselves across to other people. And so it's even as high as 90, 93% of what we communicate. In fact, you can't not communicate. Uh, even just you standing there, being there is communicating to someone else. And so there's a lot of subtlety to nonverbal communication that we, um, that people are processing it without even realizing it. Now there is, there are differences in people. Some people, uh, particularly males, we know are not tuned in as well to nonverbal communication from the research. So there is um, a difference in males and females as a general rule. And that's why there are often some problems in a marriage with communication or in relationships in general. Uh, we women tend to have expectations that men will just 
read our mind or read our emotions and what we say and and we have to be more explicit. Um, and so one thing in the workplace is to um, for people to be explicit and what they are aiming to communicate with their words as well as uh, matching it with their nonverbal communication. So there needs to be a combination. But there are all other kinds of subtleties that people uh, you know, make judgments of people about compatibility, about their cognitive abilities about their ability to relate to the whole team or be within their organization based on their nonverbal uh, communication and their ability to express themselves clearly. Um, so there are different layers of communication. Uh, we also know that listening is uh almost a lost skill these days at times because it takes attention and focus and everybody's interested in giving their opinion, but uh, nobody necessarily wants to listen to someone else without opinion, without judgment. And um, that is a, an acquired skill as well. Um, conversation is like playing a game of catch you know, too, that you talk for a while, then you hand it over to the other person, they keep the ball for a while, and then send it back to you. And some people don't seem to understand that this is a, a, a back and forth movement that where one person is not to monopolize the situation, you give equal time to each person and you value the other person's opinion and input. You know, it's so interesting. I think um, as you talk about this game of catch, uh, I, I love that visual image because uh, you throw the ball and if there's nobody to catch the ball, then you have to go and get the ball and then again throw it. And, and so either that person is not doing a good job listening or the person is not uh, attentive or the person actually is missing out on cues. And uh, is this, um, so help us understand um, because our work comes from we're having worked with somebody who has had a neurological problem or developmental problem, how does this show up in the clients that you see? So I know you work a lot with brain injuries uh, and, um, and neurological insult to the brain. Um, how does that affect uh, or why does it affect communication ultimately uh, and creates so, so many problems for those individuals to either not be able to hold a job, not hold relationships, or just experience a lot of dissatisfaction when it comes to engaging in the world? Of course, as you know, um, each individual with a brain injury is different um, because each individual is different. Each injury is different. The combination of their problems uh, with their pre-existing tendencies uh, makes each person an individual that you have to consider. However, we do know that um, two particular areas of the brain are very vulnerable to damage in traumatic brain injury, the prefrontal cortex and the anterior medial part of the temporal lobe. And those areas um, lead to problems in the executive uh, functioning area and memory areas and emotional regulation areas. So um, we know that in the long term, people after a neurological damage can learn to compensate for their physical 
injuries and their families learn to deal with that. But it's the social aspects and social communication aspects that are the most difficult for them to deal with and are the barriers to uh, independent living and to employment for the long term. So it's very critical that we address uh, the executive functioning areas, the behavioral uh, regulation, the emotional regulation, uh, the planning and self-awareness issues are very important. Oh, and, you know, um, I'm going to ask you in a minute to share uh, an example of a brain injury uh, and how it presents itself or, but I too see this so vividly and, and uh, as a, particularly people in our field, if they're novices, they are beginning their journey, they might find it very confusing or overwhelming because no two cases look alike. And, and you have to be very creative, you have to be very thoughtful, and you have to take a functional context. So do you mind maybe giving us an example of a case? And how do you um, situate the person's difficulties and needs in the context where they need to be? Uh, that's a good <laughs> How long do we have? Um... <laughs> yes, folks, Leela does day-long or many days long workshops. So this is a really very interesting answer. Let's see. (laughs) Well, uh, of course, um, you assess their neurological deficits and you look at what their functional needs and what they state are their own goals. Um, Because it is so critical, uh, you know, they have such so many and so many major problems often that it's important to address their motivation and uh, what we call ecological validity of what we're doing, uh, that it makes sense within the environment in which they exist. So you um, look at what their needs might be in their environment, do an environmental assessment to see what um, is it that they would like to be able to do in their home, Uh, And I'll give you an example of a woman that I um, have seen in the past who was in her mid-30s, had two children, had an aneurysm that burst and that was in the anterior communicating artery. Um, She uh, had a paralysis uh, on both sides, bilateral paralysis. Uh, At the very beginning, she recovered some use of her left side and could write with her left hand a little bit. Um, But she was in a wheelchair, but she wanted to be able to interact with her two children. So we worked on um, being able to, she had lots of problems with attention and um, affect. And so we worked on a reading of children's books with her children or getting them to read to her um, and then getting her to oversee their homework a little bit because she had been a teacher. And so you, um, she had problems in attention and focus herself. So by having her read to them, it was working on her attention and focus as well, but giving her a chance to be a mother 
and in the role that she valued. Wow. Uh, so sounds like you um, must take a lot of time to investigate uh, what the life of that person uh, must have been before the injury and then also what is going to be the new scope uh, of that life, which may have been limited by physical movement or maybe some like speech impairment, such as, you know, not having intelligible speech. Uh, how um, how do you bring the uh, the patient or the client uh, to become the partner of the process? Uh, what tricks do you use for that? Um, well, um, I tell them from the very beginning that um, they are in the driver's seat. You know, um, I may have the doctor in front of my name, but in this case, I am just their coach, their advisor, and their cheerleader, um, but that I cannot make them better. You know, um, they have to do the work themselves because we know from if we want to change our brain, we have to do the work ourselves. Mm. Um, Somebody else can't, you know, right now put a new learning in your brain, uh, maybe some point in the future. But, you know, it has to be work on your part for you to change your own brain. And um, so, you know, I make it clear. Now, I also believe in giving lots of practice and home practice because we know in terms of neuroplasticity that it takes a lot of repetition, a lot of practice of something before the brain has changed. So that brings me to two other thoughts. Um, And we are really meandering in the alleys of cognitive rehabilitation. But Um, I I love this emphasis that you kind of, um, um, which is probably very surprising to patients because they typically come to get advice, but then a lot of exploration that you must do is uh, say, tell me what you would like me to be of help. And that's really different way to think. So two questions. One question is um, motivation. There are certain injuries or particularly if they're prefrontal cortex injuries, it affects motivation and self-regulation. So somebody may want to become a different person, but they're not motivated to do the work. And the second piece I would love to comment on is something called metacognitive deficits, that self-blindness, as that also is the function of that prefrontal cortex, uh, which, so they may not even know how impaired they are, or the, the mom that you were talking about may not even know that she's actually not focused. Uh, she might give herself credit saying that I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah. So well, do you notice that? And how do you tackle that? Um, yes, um, that is a very, very common problem. Um, and I think it's the, you said the key there to find out what they're motivated to get better at, what motivates them as a person, what um, do they want to do um, that I can tap into. Like for her, her goal was to be a mother again. And so I could tap into that. That's a deep emotion. Although uh, with her, um, which is um, something that we have to be aware of in rehab and sometimes we're not, at first she was not, she didn't like coming to see me. She didn't want to do anything for me. She didn't want to make an effort at anything. 
And she just said, I just feel stupid. This all just makes me feel stupid. And so um, I had to kind of just say to her, um, you know, there are so many things that you're still very, very good at. You know, this injury didn't destroy everything about you. And I pointed out the things that she is very good at and told her, unfortunately, she's not paying me to address those areas that she's already good at. She wants, she's coming to get better at those areas that she's bad at. And I said, I'm so sorry to have to do this to you, <laughs> but you know, this is what rehab is about. And if I don't do this, then you won't get any better. And after she realized, oh, you know, that's, I'm coming here because of these things. And this lady is trying to really and truly help me and appreciates me as a whole person and sees the good in me as well. So um, then she became a very big advocate um, and um, that really helped the process. Now for other people, um, the motivation again, you know, again, you have to tap into whatever seems to motivate them. If they want to get back to work, if they want to uh, live independently if they want to um, play their guitar better, if whatever seems to um, uh, be able to take care of their child or their husband or their house, whatever seems to be their motivation to get better uh, helps. Now, um, sometimes you have people so injured um, that they lack any idea of self-awareness or any type of goals. Um, and so then you just have to help structure their time and um, try to build in some things that uh, you show their progress in certain small areas and um, show them how they're um, making the steps in the right direction so they can be more independent in general or um, uh, just try to find things that they enjoy doing that can lead you um, to get something done positive in their cognitive abilities. I think that's such a good point because in my work, um, I had a, a, uh, a woman who also had a ruptured aneurysm and then she developed um, a lot of um, deficits and she had a very unique job. So she uh, used to do, um, I'm, I'm going to now butcher this, but, uh, you know, in high school, you did these formations and uh, is it marching band yeah. formations that can be yes. viewed aerially and then, yes. right? So it requires like organizing 200, yes. 200 in, uh, players, you know, with uh, or musicians who are playing different instruments and choreograph them. That was her yes. job. Yes. Oh okay. my gosh. So, so she developed significant executive dysfunction and was unable to even organize, let alone like see the aerial perspective. Sorry. She was really good at that particularly particular area. So she had mastery because she has so many, so much practice, but she couldn't apply before she could probably apply those same skills in other parts of her life. So here she couldn't even like find her. She had a three-year-old, um, the three-year-old's blanket. Like it would be on the sofa 
in the in the, the living room and she would turn everything upside down and it would be right there and she wouldn't spot it. But then you ask her, show a marching band aerial picture from her past work, and she would point out who is out of formation, who needs to go next. So she had a lot of knowledge there. And so it was interesting. The whole therapy became um, this this <laughs> formation, almost going back to that job. The problem was she had paralysis on one side. So she really couldn't do that job. So her high level of motivation was in the area that she could never return. But yeah. she had so much self-blindness and unawareness that we couldn't really reveal that because that would devastate her. Exactly. Um, and, and so we kind of did like, in order to get you ready for that, kind of we right. used that as a lure to keep her engaged and motivated. Um, and one last thing, and which I want to talk about is this emotional recovery after a brain injury. Um, and because you have such amazing psychological background as well, but one thing that came up and I've seen that now in many, many clients of mine, that any prior trauma and any prior history of um, maladaptive, un poorly adjusted psychological issues kind of become unveiled, right? And right. so she was in a relationship with an abusive husband um, who would, she, she was 5'11 and he was 5'5 five five. And, <sighs> and she was 180 pounds and he was 120 pounds. Okay. So the, the pair looked very odd when they were together, but he used to beat her, like beat her black and blue. Oh, no. And what happened is she became so disinhibited, like she lost her inhibition. So she would start telling people he beats me. <laughs> it was well kept secret before her injury. And so in, in that way, it came out and then people started advocating for her or the community, you know, parents came to support. So anyway, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that emotional uh, trauma of having endured a brain injury, but also the journey of recovering after having a sense of loss, sense of self, you know, loss of sense of self. Yes. Um, yeah. It, as Ben Yushay said, it was a, a, it's a loss of self and it is a, a huge emotional um, blow when you have any threat to your health. Um, I think anyone who's had something significant happen um, to their health can understand this. Um, and it's a broken sense of who you are. And it makes life seem so unpredictable and unknowing what's going to happen to you in the future. Um, so, you know, as you and I've talked about before, you have to have that emotional bedrock of emotional stability to then for your brain to function well. So it's important to help these individuals understand how to deal with emotions that they are dealing with about their future, about their health in general. And so I spend a good bit of time helping them to understand about their brain injury, what it is and where their deficits are. So it's pretty um, 
if they're capable of understanding those things to uh, give them a good explanation of why they're having some cognitive failures and why there is some predictability, because that's another thing is to have a sense of control of who you are as a person now. And I tell them we're going to be working on generating a new owner's manual for their brain. I love that. that um, their brain has changed um, and not everything is different, but it's like there are holes that you will step in and not be able to do certain things. And it's that unpredictability of where those holes are that make people even more uncomfortable. Um, so we work on identifying, you know, where are you going to have holes and where are you going to have problems in the future? And how can we develop strategies so you can handle things, but also giving them avenues for dealing with that sense of loss, that old person is no longer there. Um, and I say that, you know, the life you will have will be different um, no matter what level of cognitive uh, recovery you have, because anyone who goes through a significant health um, incident, uh, no matter what it is, they are changed because they emotionally are dealing with something that's pretty significant. And it could be changed in some good ways, um, because you can have greater sympathy with other people who've been through some life um, episode that's changed them, but that they can still have a good life and a satisfactory life, some that they can have a sense of satisfaction um, with their life. It's just a different life. That's so brilliant. Uh, you, I love the way you weave uh, uh, the, the knowledge that you have with so much compassion. Uh, and you truly, and having been with you for 17 years, you see the person as a whole. And I think that can be very healing, Leela. Thank you for being that person for so many uh, people, because I think sometimes when we are in the healthcare system, we bring this deficit, wrongness, fix, uh, loss model, and then we are trying to bring somebody back to. Instead right. of saying everything, you are complete as you are, there's I love this idea of there's some holes there. Um, the Let's tie this idea back to the larger context of living a more fulfilling life. Uh, I think you're a big one on pro-brain uh, lifestyle and uh, maintaining healthy habits that can nurture the brain health. Um, can you share some ideas and tips that are applicable to all of us uh, to continue to nurture and uh, protect our brain as we move forward in these crazy times. Right. <laughs> um, right. It used to be pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. And then people have now, I remember like last year we were saying uh, post-pandemic and now people are like ongoing pandemic. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have adjusted our linguistics there. Exactly. Our mindset has had to be adjusted multiple times through all of this process. But um, we can, you know, uh, kind of sympathize with people with brain injuries who've had to uh, suffer social isolation and um, being in a different world um, 
for them too. I tell them, well, now everybody can understand what you're experiencing because they're going through it too. You're, in fact, you're more equipped than a lot of people are to handling it because you've already had to deal with it. But yes, the research tells us that there are a number of things that all of us can do to maximize our brain functioning and uh, help maintain our cognitive abilities as we age. As we all know, um, aging is no uh, blessing for the brain, although we do acquire more wisdom, they say. And actually, I have seen in some ways that I am definitely wiser in some areas, but have lost some cognition in some areas as I've aged. But, you know, the Number one thing that you can do for your brain, if you really want to improve it, is to exercise. And so it is very critical that people exercise, and that is both aerobic and weight training, um, all improve not only um, our overall functioning, but particularly executive functioning. So that's critical that people carve out time and think that this is just as important um, as eating or sleeping as anything else to carve out that time to exercise. And, that. and, and, and you, sorry. Uh, and when you say exercise, um, I'm sure you also are insinuating it doesn't need to be intense weightlifting, but it can be the movement, bring keeping the movement uh, in your body. Correct. Right. Just moderate. It doesn't have to be extreme. Uh, but I think I've, you know, read anywhere like 150 minutes of moderately intense uh, exercise, you know, so walking, walking fast, you know, um, several times a week, uh, having some uh, simple fitness, um, yoga and uh, Pilates and um, weights uh, routine that you do. Because maintaining your muscle mass is very important. And um, all of these things uh, increase the neurotrophic factor in your brain that particularly helps the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that has to do with formation of new memories. So, you know, we have the research that shows that how critical this is. And everyone needs to know that that's very important for brain functioning. Uh, number two is your nutrition. You know, we've always been told you are what you eat, you eat, and people may not go, well, what does that mean? But it's the nutrients that you get through fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meat, and that are the power that uh, your brain needs for it to function. Your brain uses a lot of glucose, and by that I don't mean simple sugar, but I mean then the um, glucose from fruits and vegetables and your brain needs uh, protein as well. So it's good to have um, a good balance of things um, there and to get plenty of fluids because um, people become anxious when they are uh, dehydrated and it affects brain functioning as well. So that's very important. Another factor is getting adequate sleep. Uh, people who don't sleep well are at greater risk of developing Alzheimer's. And it's uh, we none of us uh, function well when we're really tired. So that's very critical. 
If you want to preserve your cognitive abilities, having social interaction is um, very important because that takes a lot of cognitive processing. You know, this inner uh, personal interaction um, requires you to listen and be attentive and then you generate something to say um, and you engage and process information uh, and complex problem solving in situations. So whatever social interaction you have. And then having some type of spiritual or um, stress reduction activity in your life, that's very important to um, keep your brain in its best shape. We know meditation, Mm. uh, and you can speak to that, is a very valuable way of maintaining cognitive health as well. I love that. And I think, uh, thank you for summarizing. So I, I love the small distinction you're making from in exercise, think about simple fitness. Uh, you don't need to become, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, even oh, though no. he's aged now. But right. second thing, you're, you're also distinguishing between diet versus nutrients, which is a huge, important distinction because people are hyper-focused on weight and they're really not thinking about internal uh, and, neurochemistry, so to speak. Uh, I also love, again, the distinction in in the quality of sleep and really valuing sleep. I think I've saw find uh, dealing with teenagers, um, you know, in my practice, that there's actually no respect for sleep, which is kind of a shame. Yes. We, we are living in a culture where sleep is considered interfering with, with life. <laughs> right, right. And and I, I also love that emphasis on personal interactions. And, and I think that also uh, requires you to put yourself out there and uh, not really try to be perfect or be a particular way. And lastly, that uh, mindfulness meditation activities. And one thing, if I can add to that last point you said, Leela, that we now have, that this was something what we call conventional wisdom told us contemplation and meditation can help. We now though have 40 years worth of neuroscience showing us that. And one key distinction there too, is that trait versus state changes. And um, if I may quickly speak, you know this already, but so state is after meditation or during meditation or a little while after having been doing meditation, you may feel calm, but that quickly disappears when you are back in the stressful situation. So it's the state that can be, you can be tossed off the horse, so to speak. And the uh, trait is it becomes part of your character. It is like somebody who is always calm. And so becoming calm can be a long-term outcome of such a committed effort in practice. So as we come to I, I do want to add, um, Sucheta, I do want to add. Oh, yes, please. One other factor in there, yes, and that is um, engaging in um, new learning and um, doing some things that improve your thinking and cognitive ability um, to, it's important that we all challenge. I'm so glad our, you said that, yes. Um, whether that is, um, it doesn't have to be like learning to play the piano or a new language, but if you're so inclined, that's certainly it. But things like travel and 
planning a trip and engage in cultural learning through uh, traveling or taking a Tai Chi class where you're having to do something different. Um, it's important. Our brain needs new information to challenge us. If we stay in the same rut and do the same things over and over again, we never really build additional neural connections and uh, learn to adapt to different situations. So it's important to always be engaged in new learning, reading books, things like that. Love that. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot Um you know, lifelong learner, you are a lifelong learner and committed to it. Uh, you love to tease your imagination because you're a huge reader. Uh, I, um, I also, when I was growing up, my mother had a rule for us as children that we used to get two and a half months of summer vacation and we didn't have classes and things like that. You just like, you know, you did housework <laughs> and right. played in the neighborhood. But she had a rule that each of us had to learn a new skill. And that really shaped a lot of my particular dedication and commitment. Um, so recently, you might get a kick out of this. Uh, last week, in fact, I ordered um, these uh, pumps that blow balloons. I mean, they right. pump, you know, the pump instead of using your mouth. So I am going to now teach myself balloon animals. Uh, <laughs> that's my commitment. So I thought it's a concrete skill, you know. Something that I kind of know how to make a dog, but, but <laughs> I mean, I was obsessed with origami because one thing I kind of tell my patients too, that if you want to really improve executive function, you must involve motor planning. That means you need to come out of your head and you need to be in your hands. So something that requires sequencing, planning, and, and problem solving, particularly because you're engaging the visual field also, can be very helpful. So I did um, obsessively origami, and now I'm like on balloon animals. So I'll let you know my progress. Okay, please do. <laughs> I need to know whether to incorporate that in treatment. Yes. So there are always we, birthday parties going on and I'll put your name in for that. Well, the, it's, it was coming. It is going to come so handy because I have now signed up to read to pre-K children uh, oh. through a local nonprofit and uh, on Zoom. So I actually have my big ears and I have a crown that glows. So I have a lot of trinkets and little tricks to engage them. But I thought I could do a quick balloon animal that is talked about in the story, whatever the story animal ah. is, <laughs> just to tie something in, to tease myself, to challenge right. myself. Right. So as we come to the end, uh, Leela, it's been so fantastic to have this conversation. Uh, what Do you have any recommendations um, of books that uh, I ask my uh, guests to share three recommendations or two, or it doesn't matter, even one, uh, of books that have influenced you or have been meaningful to you that can you share that with our listeners? Um, well, if you are talking about that have influenced me from the past, um, I would say that um, from the past, Dragons of Eden by Carl Sagan uh, was That's an old one, yes. That really led me to go back to school and get my PhD uh, so that I could learn more about human intelligence and the whole brain. Uh, because uh, when I first started in the field, 
uh, was when individuals with brain injury were starting to come into the rehab system. Before that, um, you know, people died at the scene of accidents because there was not uh, the modern 911 uh, system where people would get rapid emergency care. And there was wasn't very much known about how to help um, the individuals with TBI. But um, so Dragons of Eden was very um, thought producing to me about um, human intelligence and human thought. And um, of course, everything by uh, Oliver Sacks, I really read and enjoyed the neurologist who wrote about uh, so many of the entities that um, and people that he dealt with. Um, I think which is Reed, your favorite? Uh, the man who mistook oh, his yes. wife for a hat. <laughs> I was in the audience in Boston when he did the read uh, for that book, and that was that time I used to even work on aphasia, so it was so meaningful. And anthropologist from Mars is also one of my favorites of his. It's great. Uh, and then um, the book, um, the brain that heals itself or changes itself. Um, uh, I think, yes, Norman Doger, Dodge. I always can't pronounce it. So I'm like letting you pronounce it. (laughs) Um, Doge, Dogeman or the brain that changes itself. Yeah. And how neuroplasticity, um, exists and that people can change that just because they're one particular way doesn't mean that you're stuck being that way. Um, that the brain is much more plastic than we were ever led to believe. Well, this is a brilliant uh, list of recommendations. I'm so glad I share interest with you. In two of them, I have not read Dragons of Eden, so that's going to be on my book list, and I'll uh, report back. Uh, Thank you, Leela, for being here today and sharing your wisdom. Um, This conversation was full of exciting um, and hopeful message about brain injury is not permanent. The journey can be very arduous, but it's worth it uh, because we all are um, subjected to human conditions. So thank you for being here with us and and really uh, finally agreeing to be on the podcast. This is going to go down in history as one of my favorite interviews. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me and I appreciate it. So that's all the time we have for this interview today. Uh, Do stay connected with us uh, through our social media. And if you would like to get some news from us, um, sign up for our newsletter. And once again, keep your brain healthy, take care of it. And remember to think is to be. And sometimes it can be hard. So enjoy yourselves. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.